This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, boy, (laughs) this is going to be a crazy one. I am beyond excited to have on just an unbelievable multi-hyphenate. I mean, he's a DC Comics legend. He created the No Man's Land series, one of the best runs ever in the history of the Batman comics, uh, and which was the basis for The Dark Knight Rises. He's also the creator of Birds of Prey, uh, which is insane. And in addition to all of that, he's also a Jewish a cappella singer, creator of the Passover Haggadah graphic novel. He's Jordan B. Gorfinkel. And we're going to talk superheroes, imaginative art, music, and so much more. But first, uh, let's set this bad boy up. Okay, so Everyone knows the Joseph story. I don't need to rehash it. I mean, Andrew Lloyd Webber crushed that one. But after the story winds down, there's this much quieter, less flashy moment when Joseph sends for his father, Jacob, and the entire rest of the family, bringing them down to Egypt and settling them in the province of Goshen. And it's a sweet moment, family reunited, but it's also ominous since we know how the Israelite story in Egypt is going to eventually play out. But anyway, while Jacob is on his way to Goshen in Egypt, the book of Genesis tells us that he sent his son Judah ahead to lead the way before him into Goshen. So Judah's kind of like driving the U-Haul on the way there. Now, interestingly, there's this ancient Jewish tradition, it's almost 2,000 years old, that what Judah was doing in Goshen was not just moving in, getting the Wi-Fi set up. He actually went to establish a school, a yeshiva, where Jacob and his family could study the word of God. Now, most people hear this story and they're like, okay, that's nice, but this is just like ancient rabbis making things up willy-nilly, right? Well, here's the thing. This tradition is part of one of the oldest genres of biblical commentary in existence, and the rabbis called their brand of it midrash. And the way midrash works is it uses subtle and really meticulous close reading of the text to help expand our spiritual imaginations and aspirations. And in this case, the Midrash noticed that the word Genesis uses for lead the way, as in Jacob sent Judah to lead the way, is lehorot. And the root of that word, Y-R-H, if you transliterate it into English, actually has several different meanings. It can mean to lead, but it can also mean to teach. As in Deuteronomy 33, they teach Jacob your ordinances. The word for teach there is that very same root. So another totally permissible way, linguistically and syntactically speaking, to read the verse in Genesis would be, and Jacob sent Judah ahead to Goshen to teach. So hence the idea that Judah's preparatory role was actually establishing a school. And it's such a clever, imaginative way to read the text, and the insight it provides us is crucial. So first and most obviously, it highlights the societal importance of learning in the biblical tradition. So you know, in the penetrating words of my teacher, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, and it's one of my favorite lines from him, Jews became the people whose passion was education, whose citadels were schools, and whose heroes were teachers. It's a beautiful line. But another thing we can learn from Midrash as a whole, and this is just one example, is the importance of imaginative storytelling, right? The Jewish tradition thrived off of this. They looked at the real world of the Bible and found oceans of meaning and story flowing just beneath the surface. 
And I want to talk more about the social and cultural ramifications of this type of reading of imagination in society's moral formation. So, of course, to unpack all of this, I brought on someone who's done imaginative storytelling in visual and audio media at the highest possible level. His credits are just, like, insane. He created some of the most legendary material in the history of the Batman comics. He created Birds of Prey. He's an acapella singer, author, so much more. He's the man, the myth, the legend, Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Gorf! Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. I love it. <laughs> Michael Weingrad uh, had this essay just over a decade ago, like in 2010-ish, uh, in the Jewish Review of Books, where he wondered why there aren't any great Jewish writers of epic fantasy. And while the easy reply to that is that, like, of course there are, like Neil Gaiman is just one example, Ross Douthat in the New York Times made the good point that there aren't Jewish-authored epic fantasy sagas that feel profoundly Jewish in the same way that the famous Christian-authored epic fantasy sagas feel profoundly Christian, like Narnia, Lord of the Rings, The Wheel of Time. But I think the answer to this question is that there actually is a massive tradition of deeply Jewish fantasy writing. It's just called the comic book tradition. So like the word, you know, like the worlds of DC or Marvel. So someone who's been deeply engaged in the comic book tradition, do you see something distinctively Jewish about the DC world or the wider genre in general? There were about 15 questions in there. I'm going to try to remember all of them. <laughs> but first, L'Chaim. Let's do it. <laughs> Why am I saying L'Chaim? Because I am inventing the good faith effort drinking game. The way it's going to work is every time you make some kind of a classical reference that I don't know, I take a drink. Oh, my God. I love it, guys. <laughs> so what, at Weingarten, what was the, what was the in the beginning? Michael Weingrad. Uh, uh, Weingrad. Sorry. Sorry. I was remembering my uh, friend, Mayor Weingarten, a blessed memory. Okay. So, so let me tick a few off here. For example, for those new listeners, when you're in the comic book business or the graphic novel business, the storytelling business, the most important rule is don't confuse your reader, or in this case, your listener, or your viewer. You have to give the establishing shot. You have to give context to anything that you're talking about. So let me give some context to the good faith drinking game. <laughs> so, for example, the plot of John Wick is an updating of the Iliad. L'chaim. The merchants of Venice in Genoa are reading Cicero as a ticket to upward mobility. L'chaim. Thomas Hobbes, Hugo Grotius, John Selden, Census Literatus. L'chaim, 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 L'chaim. And by the way... Oh, you've listened to the last couple episodes. That's awesome. Erastus. Did you mean Erasmus of Corinth or Thomas Erastus of Switzerland? Thomas Erastus of Switzerland. That go. is a good pickup because we've done, we've talked about Erasmus on the pod and Erastus, and that was Thomas Erastus. That is a great call. I love this, by the way. We need the t-shirt for this too. This is great. But no, you need you need a <laughs> shot glass for this. We need the shot glass, All right? That's <laughs> but I'm true. just telling you, we ignoramuses, or is that ignorami, need better search engine parameters in future episodes. So there you go. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, I, okay, I forgot the question no, now. Right. Uh, <laughs> the question is about Jewish, uh, whether there is a, a, a tradition of Jewish fantasy and, uh, and Jewish creators in the Jewish fantasy area and whether or not DC or the broader fictional universes actually have some kind of a crossover. That's a good term, because we use that in comic books and graphic novels and universes all the time, a crossover. And 
In fact, we don't have to go back very far because you talked about Midrash in the beginning of your introduction. And on a recent episode, Rabbi Foreman touched on this. And I thought that I would cite from him because I figured that this was going to come up. And he talked about the unitary nature of the Bible, and he referred to hyperlinks of text, how words have multiple layers and different sections mirror, or as I like to say, echo each other. George Lucas used to say that the Star Wars universe had echoes. So for example, there would be characters in different eras that would say, I got a bad feeling about this. That would be an <laughs> echo. It was like poetry, the way he constructed it. So precisely the same principles that were used to construct a well, that are used to construct a well-constructed fantasy universe and multiverse are the same ones that we use to construct Midrash. And what I mean by that is with comics periodicals, the story can be built holistically or piecemeal, which means that sometimes you're writing a comic book or graphic novel story in an anthologized way. So you're writing, say, a four-book series, and you will write book one on deadline without really knowing what the ending is going to be. But then there are other times where you're writing it more holistically, like a graphic novel, whereas comic book periodicals are typically created in an anthologized way and then collected into what we call a trade paperback. The graphic novel is a complete unit that is created well, as a complete unit. So you're writing the beginning, the middle, and the end, and it gives you the opportunity to go back and review and correct and spice it up with all of the different hyperlinks, if you will, of story. So the most brilliant stories are the ones that have the liminal spaces, the gaps that give you opportunities to fill in along the way. Of all the stories that have been told about Batman over time, he would probably have to be at this point older than Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, at, at, <laughs> at, at, at Moses's passing. But because this is a continuing story that has its core text, but then its expansive universe, its expanded universe, which is what we call Midrash, we're able to fill in those spaces with stories that can illuminate all of the, the universes of possibility that are apparent if you just go looking for them. Now, some people may say that Midrash is fantasy, but in Judaism, to my point of view, there is reality and then there's truth. And what I mean by that is there is historical reality, what really happened, but then there's the truth. If you want historical reality, then be an archaeologist, right? If you want truth, that's where Torah comes in because you have the beginning, the foundation of history, but that's just the beginning. From there, you expand into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the DC Universe, all the alternate realities. And uh, I, I go into the alternate reality possibilities in, in Judaism shortly. But the bottom line is Midrash has a very strong parallel to comics and fictional universes. So that's part one. Part two of your question is, what about the creators? Certainly, there are plenty of creators uh, who have not only a Jewish connection, but the secret origin of comics and graphic novels, and indeed the basis for all of these multi-billion dollar industries in fantasy worlds that we see have have swept up not only the public, but the uh, the board of directors for all these major corporations. All of them have their roots 
in Jews. And Ari, excuse me, I should call you Reb Ari. I want to be respectful. Don't, we're all good. <laughs> and and by the way, we've we've got to make sure to talk about your grandfather at some point because he's been a prof profound influence on my storytelling. I'll get to that in a second. Oh, that's amazing. So as you mentioned, I'm the uh, author of a series of Jewish graphic novels. And the first one is the Passover Haggadah graphic novel. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a graphic novel on one side, which takes the English translation and fuses it with the Marvel or DC style storytelling. And on the facing pages, you have the original Hebrew and the transliteration, because like you, I'm a big tent Jew. I want to, I, I don't expect to bring me bring people to me i like to go to people so i want to be able to appeal to the broadest possible audience and that means not presuming that anybody has the scholarship of oh you for example <laughs> and giving you all the tools that you need but like a good say bugs bunny or simpsons cartoon it operates on two levels you can take the pashut shot you can take the surface level text meaning and gather the understanding from the graphic novel pages or you can go be you and you can go in depth and find the midrash what what's the translation for midrash meticulous but fanciful exegesis like that doesn't even do it justice okay but it's, exegesis l'chaim <laughs> Oh, the, like the grounded but imaginative storytelling. Right. 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 But it's more than that because Midrash is not just an expanded universe of stories and characters. It's trying to penetrate the text to arrive yes, right. at a deeper meaning that is existential at its core. And truth, meaning to, to arrive at a deeper truth. At a deeper truth. Very well said. So what's my point here? I go on tour and I visit communities literally all over the world, across North America. The summer, I was very privileged to be in Israel and South Africa. And I give talks about the intersection between Judaism and popular entertainment with an emphasis in graphic novels and, and popular culture storytelling. And one of the major things that I talk about is the secret origin of all this material. Where did it come from? Well, it all began... I'm not, I'm not going to give too many spoilers here. I, I want people to have me come to their <laughs> communities. But it all began, I believe, with Jewish learning. Because if you look at the creators of Superman, for example, Siegel and Schuster, two teenagers, I should say, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, two teenagers who were children of immigrants, European immigrants, Jews who did not feel like they belonged in American society. But Siegel and Schuster wanted to acculturate to American society, but they were stereotypical Jewish kids. One wore glasses and was bookish, one was artistic. Great at basketball, weightlifters, you know, the, the stereotypes, right, the, the classics. Exactly, you know. <laughs> exactly. So they created the concept of Superman, a story for another time. And where did that idea come from? Where did that thinking come from? And my belief is it came from Jewish learning, because if they hadn't been steeped on the idea of Jewish text, look at a page of Talmud. For our listeners, go right now, search up a page of Talmud, look at images on Google or whatever search engine you use, and, and kind of take a step back from it and blur your eyes. And what do you see? Well, I see the panels of a comic book page. That's a great point. 
You have a source text in the middle. You have the commentaries that are built in blocks around the central image. So what's the central image? It's going to be Superman flying in, in bright red and blue. And around it, you're going to have Ma and Pa Kent, his parents, and you're going to have Jimmy Olsen. You're going to have Lois Lane. And then, of course, let's not forget that in Talmud, we have citations. In graphic novels, just like in the Talmud, we also have citations, but they're called footnotes. So if Batman is fighting the Joker, for example, then the editor will pipe in in a little box at the bottom, a little footnote, and say, this took place in Batman number 117, it, it, Stan Lee or Denny O'Neill or point. Gregarious Gorf. So you can see that. And remember, back then when Siegel and Schuster, this was in the uh, the, the early 30s, 1930s. Because uh, I figure we're going to have longevity with this podcast. People might be listening into the 2040s, 2050s. <laughs> so I want to be clear this is 1930s, not 2030s for those. Oh, that checks out. Yeah, checks absolutely. out. <laughs> uh, so Siegel and Schuster, the 30s, they had what was popular, the popular entertainment of their time, which was newspaper comic strips. And newspaper com. and by the way, listeners, younger listeners, for those of you who don't know, a newspaper is when you take the internet, you print it out, and you hand it to somebody. Okay, we're clear on the technology now. Because after all, this podcast is the intersection of intellectualism and technology, so I wanted to make sure that I cover both of them. The uh, <laughs> I got a smile. You can't, you can't nice. hear, but you got it. You got the reference. Nice. <laughs> so Siegel and Schuster had an idea of what kind of medium they wanted to use to share their story, and they infused it with the kind of Judaism, Jewishly structured learning modes, I think that makes sense, that they must have been raised in, in order to come out with what we now know as the superhero comic book. So, I, oh, there's so many ways to go off of that. That 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 basically could just create the entire rest of the podcast right there. Okay, so let let's start here. You're the creator of one of the most important Batman runs ever, uh, the No Man's Land storyline. No spoilers, but for those who haven't read it, Gotham suffers an earthquake, gets abandoned, like literally cut off by the rest of the country, and it's left to fend for itself. And then it's a question of how does Gotham break down into different territories and, and gang territories and so You on. have a future as a back cover copywriter. Hey, oh, let's do it. <laughs> what was always so fascinating to me about this storyline and this series, and it's one of the larger ones, is that it's the opposite of what we expect from the comic book genre, which is like to go increasingly huge, right? First, we fight in our neighborhood, then we fight across the country, then across the planet, then in space, then on other planets, then in the multiverse, and on and on and on. But No Man's Land instead goes like super small. It pans the lens in on just one small place and, and explores what happens there. So did you think about that as you created it? And what are the like the challenges and advantages of going small like that? First, let's talk about the origins of that particular storyline. Batman No Man's Land was deeply influenced by a story that will be very close to your heart and your listener's heart, which is from a Torah portion of recent vintage, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sod Stone the Amorah. Are you serious? Yeah. That's awesome. Think about it. The story goes... And by the way, I know you call him Lot because that's probably the English translation. I got to go with Lot. <laughs> so forgive me. Forgive me, folks out there. I'm going with Lot. So the story goes that Lot was Abraham's nephew and he lived in a den of iniquity. 
the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the story famously goes that God was going to destroy the city, which to me is a little bit of a problem anyway, because after the flood, God promised that he was not going to do this again. But I guess, you know, there was a little carve out in the contract that said, I'm not going to destroy the whole world, but individual cities, eh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, that's for a midrash of another time. Abraham argued with God, if there are 50 people who are decent, will you save the city? And he negotiates 40, 30, 20, 10. They finally land on 10. If there are 10 moral people, will you save the city? God says, sure. They can't find 10. So the city gets destroyed. And this is the famous story where Loth's wife turns into a pillar of salt because she turns around to view God's handiwork and nobody should view that. Well, that's the story of Batman No Man's Land. To me, in, in my thinking, and by the way, I want to give credit where credit is due, none of this happens in a vacuum. It takes a shtetl to be able to create a Jewish graphic novel. Well, it takes, it takes a Gotham City worth of talented people in order to create Batman comics. And a uh, shout out to my partners, Denny O'Neill of Blessed Memory, who was my Rebbe of Batman. We called him our sensei. And my partners, Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo, and all the wonderful people who were on the DC Comics team now and forever. Shouts to all these folks. I love it. The story of Batman No Man's Land then in my conception, was the 10th anniversary of the reboot at that time of Batman, which started with Frank Miller's Year One, Batman Year One, a seminal work. And that has been developed into movies and TV shows. And whether or not you've read that book, you've seen that version of Batman's origin adapted in some way. Ten years on, the solo Batman, the lone fighter, Joseph, if you will, from our Parsha, who need our portion of the week, who needs to go it alone eventually gathers family members. Robin, the boy wanderer who grows up and becomes Nightwing, a new Robin, Batgirl, the Batgirl who becomes Oracle, and of course, Alfred, who was like Eliezer, Abraham's manservant. And Batman was faced with an untenable situation, which was the city that for 10 years he had been fighting to save was now being left for ruin by the U.S. government. The U.S. government said, you know what? After 10 years of all these superhero battles, the city is a shambles. It's a wreck. It's irredeemable. Clearly, it's a den of iniquity. It's evil. We need to cut it off from the United States and just let it rot in its own evil juices. So we're giving everybody 48 hours. The good people can get out. Anybody who's left is going to be stuck in Gotham City for all time, and that's the end of it. So Batman thinks to himself, well, gosh, for all the negotiating I've done with God to try to redeem Gotham City on the basis of 50 good people that I've saved or 40 good people that I've saved or 30 good people, et cetera, et cetera, all of that has been for naught. So what he decides is he is going to go it alone. He's going to be bereft of his family, like Joseph was bereft. I'm mixing up a couple of things here, but nevertheless, we're talking about this portion of the week, so let's go with it. He's going to be bereft of his family, the support of his father, Alfred, and he's going to fight the good fight to reclaim the soul of Gotham himself. And over the course of the story, as he rises, as the Dark Knight rises in power and begins to win back the city, he also realizes that the very 
thing that he thought was his weakness is actually his true source of strength, and that's his family. And he slowly lets back in all of his family members into the Batcave, proverbially speaking. And by the end of the story, he's learned two things. Number one, saving even one soul is worth the price of all the sacrifices that he made. And number two, you need your family. It takes a shtetl. You can't do it yourself. You can't make great Batman work or great any kind of work without the support of your friends and family. And you certainly then cannot save one soul, never mind an entire city, without that kind of support and belief as well. I got to tell you, I was, I'm blown away by this. This is unbelievable. Uh, I did not realize those were the inspirations behind No Man's Land. That is so, that makes the, the comic so much richer. Well, it's that, and I really want to make a cool, you know, kicking story. <laughs> those two things. And then we had a team of writers and artists. I mean, literally a hundred people who were building this out and brought in their own ideas and their own philosophies. And I bet if we had all of them on as guests, besides this podcast going on way too long, we would probably find that they brought their own influences into it and it became a multicultural, multi-religious experience. But from from my perspective, this is, I think, the the main influence. And whether, you know, memory is imperfect, that's why we have Midrash. And this is my Midrash. The facts may be different, but I'm sticking with it. So the Bane character, right, Bane, in your run, he's not necessarily like the frightening maniac we see in like Dark Knight Rises or Nightfall. In No Man's Land, he's like, he's got zingers, he's pretty over the top. And in a way, I think this is the dramatic version of Bane that inspired the comedic version, which is inspired by No Man's Land in the current Harley Quinn show, where like he's played by James Adomian and he's this kind of like ne'er-do-well sad sack who isn't quite you know, able to leverage the fact that he's unstoppable. And I actually really like this type of Bane because it's one of the closest things DC gets to the humorous aesthetic that you find in Marvel. Now, I think Marvel way overdoes it most of the time and it's just not enjoyable. But what do you think is the role of humor in in comic book storytelling, like in good comic book storytelling? Uh, so first of all, I think I want to put on my tombstone, never leveraged his, how did you say it? Shoot, I wish we could go back. <laughs> the fact that he's unstoppable. Right, the fact that he's unstoppable. That's it. That's what I want on my tombstone. Right, the problem is I'm not taking notes while we're talking because I don't want that clicking in the background and I'm forgetting more than I'm remembering. Like, I feel guilty. You asked a series of questions in the last one and all I did was tell you about the origins of No Man's Land. We never got to all the other <laughs> stuff. We need a replay. <laughs> Nevertheless, I want to try to stay on topic for you. And speaking of topic, the place of humor in superheroes. Well, first of all, as you've probably surmised, there isn't just one Batman. Denny O'Neill, and I'm not sure if he originated this idea, but I give him credit for it, always said that there's a Batman for every decade. And I think there's more than that. There's a Batman for everybody, because Batman is one of the most malleable characters in the history of fiction. I think he's the best character in the history of fiction. And you're welcome to argue with me, but you'll be wrong. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> and uh, well, at least for this podcast, you know, right. next episode, you're going to have on John Favreau and he's going to talk about Star Wars and, you know, <laughs> it'll be Luke Skywalker. But anyway, so there are different interpretations of Batman for the ages. The original Dark Knight was quite the mercenary. He even packed a gun very quickly. Bill Finger, who was truly a co-creator of Batman, ditched the gun 
if I'm not mistaken in my history here. And he became more of the big brother kind of Batman, which is close to the Batman Brave and the Bold animated series that uh, I think aired somewhere around the OOs or so. And let's not even move forward from that. Not even to the 50s sci-fi Batman, to the 60s go-go Batman, to the 70s Dark Knight, to the 80s Dark Knight Returns, to the 90s my version, etc., etc. Let's just stick with those two right there. In the OOs, both of them coexisted. You had the Batman Begins series, which became the Dark Knight, which begat the Dark Knight Rises. By the way, Batman Begins animated series, one of the great Batman animated Series. Oh, without a doubt. Kudos to uh, Bruce Tim and Paul Dini and all of those guys who created a seminal show. Unreal. And so the animated series that you had in the OOs was this jazzy, and it even had a jazz score. Batman teams up with another superhero, and they naturally have some kind of a misunderstanding, but they find detente, and then they become palsy-wowsy at the end of it. So it's very much Batman as your big brother, you know. It's not golly gee whiz, but it is very friendly and very, I don't want to say kid-friendly, but it's just friendly, overall friendly, because I think the best work always works for adults and kids simultaneously. Like I said before, it's like a, a good Simpsons episode or a good Bugs Bunny episode. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so there are in-jokes for the adults, and then there is the friendliness, uh, the morality, the, the, the central morality or morality tale that, uh, that works for kids and adults likewise. And then you had the uh, Dark Knight Rises or Dark Knight movie series by Christopher Nolan, which was much darker. Now, were you, was anybody confused about who Batman is because there were these different Batmen coexisting? No. And that's why the character works so well like that. But And Spider-Man, to some degree, works well also. You have the Spider-Verse and different versions of him. But at the core, unless you change who Spider-Man is, like he's Miles Morales as opposed to Peter Parker, you're not really changing up Spider-Man, you're just changing up a costume. With Batman, you have so many different personae that it lends itself to every possible kind of storytelling, which is what makes it so rich. And to answer your question about humor, that's just one shade, one flavor of the storytelling. So whether you're talking about comics or graphic novels or animation or film or any of that stuff, and for that matter, whether you're even talking about our sacred Jewish texts, let's, let's look at, at the Talmud, for example. These guys were hilarious. I mean, they're talking about something so serious, like if an ox falls into a hole and breaks a leg, who's responsible? And the next thing, you have two pages that are talking about what they had for breakfast and arguing about it. I mean, you got to love those guys. They didn't take themselves that seriously. And it's likewise, I think, in good storytelling. You talked about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, things are rather tongue-in-cheek. Sometimes it goes a little too far in one direction or the other. But to, to, to have a light touch, I think, is appreciated by most viewers uh, or most uh, connoisseurs of this material. And it's a perfectly legitimate way to go, as is having something more adult-oriented like the Harley Quinn animated series, uh, which is, I mean, are you confused? How is it that a very adult-leaning adaptation of Batman is airing at the same time as this very, forgive me, kid-friendly adaptation of Batman? And the answer is, it works. We can do it. I mean, it's so funny that you say that, because that idea that no one is confused. I love that idea. No one's confused by the different Batman. It doesn't work for every comic book superhero, and it certainly doesn't work for every villain. 
But if I think of the the one iconic villain it does work for, and historically it has worked so well for, it's the Joker. Like I grew up with the, you know, with the Batman, the classic Batman animated series where the Joker is like, you know, Mark Hamill, he's the, he's the clown. And I the one storyline, my friends and I, we used to just joke about this all the time, that the classic storyline that we all remember from the Joker was like, he's trying to commit marketing fraud, right? Like that's like the big plot that he has. And then, you know, you fast forward to the Dark Knight and you have... Like Maggie Gyllenhaal can't even look at Heath Ledger because he's he's so frightening, even though it's you know it's just a scene. Is that part of what what makes the Joker such a, a timeless villain, and in, in many ways as big, if not bigger, than Batman? I was just talking about this yesterday. I was the guest at a class at UNLV in Las Vegas. The associate dean of the law school actually teaches a class on Batman and the classics. And he relates <laughs> classic literature. Oh, you would love this. I got to put you guys in touch. It's Professor Brian Wall. Future guest on Good Faith. Oh, you, you got to bring him in. <laughs> and we were talking about why the Joker is the ultimate foil for Batman. And first of all, a hero is only as good as his villain. A person can only rise as tall as the challenges that they have faced and overcome. I recall my, I think it was my grandfather's uncle who used to refer to Nisio Note all the time, right? Abraham had a, a famously 10 trials in his life. He had his Nisio Note. Well, if I, if I ever get the opportunity to go back, you know, and do another Batman story, it occurs to me that the 10 trials of Batman would make for a fascinating story. <laughs> and, and arguably, there may have been something like that, because when Batman was training, there might have been a story in which he was trained by 10 different experts in different disciplines. I'm trying to think of examples. It's not coming to me right now. But, uh, you know, he he is the Dark Knight detective in the Robert Pattinson version. They finally bring the detective ver version of him or, or side of him back in. I'm, I'm straying way off the topic here. There was a story I wanted to tell. This is a story that I could only tell on this podcast. I don't know who else would appreciate it. <laughs> the Bat Guys, uh, Scott, Darren, and I, were supposed to have dinner with Mark Hamill. And Mark Hamill played the voice of the Joker. He's an extremely accomplished voice actor. And, of course, he's well known as Luke Skywalker. And I had to pass on having dinner with Luke Skywalker. And you got to understand, when I was getting older, I was about to say growing up, but the truth is I never grew up. I'm kind of like a Jewish Peter Pan. Uh, when, I, when, I was, when I was getting slightly larger, I was a huge science fiction fantasy fan. As a, that's like that's like passing on jamming with Bob Dylan. Uh, uh, totally, <laughs> totally. And uh, it, to the point where I moved around a lot. I talk about this when I do my touring. I moved around a lot. I moved 11 times or so before I was 21. The only two consistencies in my life as I was being moved from place to place were my Judaism, my Jewish faith and observance, and the comic book characters. And at that time, DC Comics characters were, for me, the only comic book characters. Why? Because at least when I was reading those comics in the 70s, there were a lot of reprints back then, uh, going all the way back to the 40s and the 50s. The DC Comics universe was very black and white, and it mirrored the way that I was learning Jewish texts. So in Judaism, there was good and there was evil, and never the twain shall meet. And it was like the Batman would always defeat the Joker, and that was the way that the world worked. And it was a wonderful way to be raised, to feel the confidence uh, that the morality of the world was echoed 
by or mirrored by the superhero comics and stories that I was reading. Now, get a little bit older, and a funny thing happened. I, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, who were very influential on my own observance, level of observance. And my grandfather used to lay on the couch every Sunday and read the Sunday funnies. And uh, maybe I got some of my uh, some of my fandom from him in some way. And somebody came home with an Archie Comics Christmas special. And <laughs> he was not, he was a speak softly and carry a big stick kind of guy. He didn't say anything, but that comic book disappeared very quickly. And the next thing you know, a copy of X-Men number 130 appears. This is a Marvel comic. And first, what he must have done was he must have gone back to the store. Can you imagine this guy walking into, you know, a very devout Jew walking into the comic book store and handing it to the the clerk and saying, I need something else. What do you want? I don't know anything, but not this. Imagine how that conversation went. And that was my introduction to the Marvel Universe, because suddenly there's a Marvel comic in my possession. Well, of course, I'm going to read it. And the X-Men storyline at that time was just phenomenal. The uh, Claremont Byrne stuff, very redolent in Judaism. We don't have time to go into that right now. And uh, so bottom line is, I was introduced to the Marvel Universe, which was Shades of Grey, where the line between the hero and villain was oftentimes blurred. And for instance, Wolverine, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? He kind of straddles that line. And that's a more mature interpretation of Judaism where, yes, when you're a kid, you want to believe that God is the master of justice who controls the world and makes sure that everything goes according to plan. But the reality is things don't often go according to plan, and you can't often make sense of why things in life happen the way they do. And the Marvel comics was more reflective of this, just like the creators. Siegel and Schuster had a more black and white look because they were raised in the 30s. It was World War II. It was the U.S. versus the Nazis. Here's Superman who's going to come save the day. Very black and white in a four-color costume. Then comes along Stan Lee, who, by the way, created Spider-Man at 40 years old. Robbie Akiva, anybody? I love it. He comes along <laughs> and says, instead of emphasizing the super in man, we're going to emphasize the man in super. And by man, we mean person, because they're uh, I, I, obviously I'm not obviously I created Birds of Prey, the longest running female superhero team franchise in the history of comic books. And my Jewish influences definitely played into that. We could talk about that if you want. I don't know how much time we have left at this point. We need like five podcasts. It's crazy that you also created like that was like your the side hobby you had was creating one of the biggest franchises ever. Right, I got to get to the point <laughs> of the story, but I'll give you this quick anecdote over here. What's Birds of Prey? Birds of Prey is if two Jewish superheroines had Jewish mothers, okay? <laughs> the, my influence on this was actually more pop cultural. I won't get into that right now. But you had Barbara Gordon, the former Batgirl, who's now relegated to a wheelchair because of a run-in with the Joker, who becomes more powerful and more influential than she ever was as a, a, a Batman knockoff, being her own person. She is a quintessentially Jewish person because her power comes strictly from her intellect. Now, right, she can't move. She's paralyzed, right? She's paralyzed. Yes, she's in a wheelchair. She's paralyzed from the waist down. And she reinvents herself as a master of information. She reinvents herself as a rabbi. Oracle. 
Oracle. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And um, I, I didn't create this character, by the way. Um, I, I was blessed to have been bequeathed this character to utilize. And I teamed her up with Black Canary, who's all id. She's all physical, fights through her problems. So I thought, okay, so one half of them is going to be the brains. And the other half is going to be the bronze. And they're going to treat each other like the, the women in my life do. Now, you may not have noticed, but occasionally women can be, shall we say, objectified in a popular culture. I have been guilty accused of being guilty, and I, I admit to being guilty in a couple instances of doing the same thing. Live and learn. You grow. You get older, wiser, learn. Well, my idea was if we have the brains and the brawn and they're going to be dealing with each other like the women that I've seen in my life, then they're going to be respectful of each other. They're going to talk through their problems. They're going to lean on each other in a true partnership. And also, they're going to dress like women. There's a concept in observant Judaism called sniut, which is to be modest, modest in talk and modest in dress. So you may have noticed in the objectification of women in comic books, they'll often run around in skimpy outfits. I mean, you being a devout rabbi, you, of course, have never seen this. God forbid, poo, poo, poo. But for the rest of us, <laughs> we're a little less devout. We have occasionally, unfortunately, been subjected to these terrible images. You shouldn't know it. Shouldn't know from it. <laughs> The uh, I'm being way too hyperbolic here. The conception <laughs> I, I had was, OK, so with Birds of Prey, with Black Canary, when it's cold outside, she's going to put pants on and she's going to wear a jacket. <laughs> she's going to dress a little more modestly. Why? Because her Jewish mother is going to say, you're going out to fight crime dressed like that. What? <laughs> you don't have to worry about being killed by the Joker. A cold. You're going to catch a cold. That'll be the death of you. So that was Birds <laughs> of Prey. And now we've gone really far afield. And I was going to tell you the end of another story. And without rewinding the tape, I don't remember what that, the end of the story is. There's something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Mark Hamill thing, that's where it all began. So what's the reason why? Right. You guys can't see this. You, you, you listener, you listeners, you dear listeners, you patient dear listeners for sitting through this podcast. You can't see <laughs> Reb Ari's face, but he has to look on his face like, I don't know what hurricane just hit me. <laughs> I'm like enthralled. This is unbelievable. And, and so you can see, by the way, why I'm a comic book guy and not a Rebbe, because we would never get through the first Pasuk. We would never get through the first passage uh, if, exactly. I, if I were a rabbi or a teacher. So I have this dinner with Mark Hamill, but I say I'm not going. Why am I not going? Because we had Bitachon rehearsal. Bitachon is the very first professional all-male Jewish a cappella group. It's the one that kicked off what, for those of us who have been to a bar bat mitzvah or wedding lately, know as the Simcha a cappella craze, which simply means that at Jewish celebrations and events, particularly ones where observance of traditional Judaism bars us, bar mitzvahs us, from listening to or using amplified music or musical instruments. So how do you are you how are you entertained musically? Well, in the tradition of the church, that's what a cappella means. So we have harmony singers who travel around from table to table, and they're like your long-lost cousins who show up knowing how to sing and dance and lead you in all of the uh, kosher for Jewish observance events. And my group is called Kol Zimra, but Bitachon was the first one. And Bitachon had rehearsal three times a week because back then we didn't have computers to be able to sing our voices individually and voice correct and merge them and make it all fancy. We actually had to practice together and then gather around one mic, just like you and I are speaking into right now, and sing 
perfectly. And we would do a few takes, and that's what we released as the music. There was no fancy post-production. So in order to achieve that, we had to be a well-oiled machine, and that meant that we had three two-hour rehearsals on a weekly basis. I was the leader of the group, and I made a cheshbon. I made a calculation that as the leader of the group, I had a responsibility to Jewish a cappella that transcended Luke Skywalker. I love this. <laughs> Those are priorities, correct priorities. Okay, so Reb Ari, I have to now turn the tables a little bit. Sure. I have to ask you, you are a scholar of Jewish subjects, and also, certainly if not a scholar, a connoisseur of pop culture. In your life, which came first? Which was the chicken and which was the egg? That is a great question. That is a great question. I think like most people raised in the Orthodox Jewish community, Jewish practice and text and study came first chronologically. But like most kids anywhere, including in the Orthodox Jewish world, my fascination with the world of the imagination uh, and my love for the world of the imagination and appreciation for it as a genre came first. And it actually was in high school that I had a Rebbe, I had a teacher, a teacher of Jewish studies, who was a, a remarkable, unusual man. And he was also a, an incredible connoisseur of pop culture. He was a, an incredibly learned, but also an extraordinary connoisseur of pop culture, of music, of comic books, of sports, uh, etc. And every time that he would give us a test, we would have regular tests on the Talmud. There would always be what he called general knowledge questions. And you would feel like like you had truly disappointed your teacher in a profound way if you got any of them wrong. And of course, we we all got most of them wrong. But I never forgot who all the members of the Who were and what they played because I got that question wrong in my first test in, in 10th grade. But what, what, what I actually used to do is I used to cut lots of class in high school, lots of class. But instead of going and goofing off and, you know, going to the movies or whatever, because I went to high school in, in the city, in New York City, uh, I would cut class and go to the teacher's lounge and read books and, and argue with this teacher of mine. Uh, and we would study Talmud together and we would read books great books together. And he really taught me how to think. And one of the things that he taught me was that uh, if you treat pop culture like rest and relaxation, not only are you cheapening pop culture, you're also selling yourself short because you're spending time on this that would better have spent, meaning if you're, if, if this is the time that you're dedicating to rest and relaxation and to rest and relaxation, you would much better spend it by playing sports or doing aerobics or doing something that actually improves your health. If you're actually going to spend time on this and not have it take away from your exercise time or whatever it was, you should take it seriously. And I remember, I'll, I'll never forget one of the things he said to me about pop culture. He said about the Godfather, <laughs> this teacher of mine said, if you watch the Godfather and it doesn't affect your neshama, that's the Hebrew word for soul, it doesn't affect your soul, it's because you don't have one. And uh, ever since then, I just made a, a strong decision that if I was going to spend time engaging with this world, which I've, I've loved for a very long time and the love for which I've maintained over the course of my various interests in Judaism and history and Jewish texts, et cetera, if I'm going to spend time with all of these things that I, that I love and feel an affinity for, I'm going to try and take them seriously because all of them in just, I think in, in just as, you know, not, not always, but in just as serious a way as some of the great works of the Western canon, pop culture is a way 
at, at its worst, it can be a way of just trying to scratch people's itch for something to do. But at their best, it's a way of exploring the human condition in a way that's actually relatable to people and doesn't require any sense of esotericism. So in the case of comic books and, and pop culture in general, whether it's, you know, sitcoms, which I love and people know I love, uh, or sports or music, I see these all as the ele as elements of the human experience that are not kind of holy and sacred in and of themselves. But if you take seriously God's role as creator of the world and God's desire to have a special relationship with humans, and you take God's word seriously, namely the Bible and, and in, you know, and in the case of our community, the Talmud and its commentaries as a guide to life and as a framework for thinking about God's role in the world, then taking the human experience seriously is something that you can that you can sanctify. It's not intrinsically holy in and of itself, but you can sanctify it. And that's how I think about it. I actually started taking notes here because you hit on several, <laughs> several important points. Whoops. I love it. Well, I actually want to, uh, speaking of, you know, one of the formative influences on my life, as I've talked about on this podcast many times, was, uh, was and is my grandfather, Rabbi Norman Lamb of blessed memory. Right. Yeah, we have to. So let me see if I can tie all that together here. I am so curious, <laughs> which I think I can. All right, here we go, because I also I, I want to turn serious for a second, because we've been talking about uh, pop culture is a lot of fun to talk about. But my purpose is, like you said, to sanctify, to be malabik tusha, to fuse my two great loves, which are Judaism and popular culture storytelling into something that can inspire, illuminate and most of all, connect connect people to their Jewish identity through popular or modern milieu. And I talk to people all the time about this. In my case, it's comic books and graphic novels. That's my particular expertise. But other people have their own expertise. And you may be a doctor or a lawyer, or you may be a construction worker or a homemaker. You may be a child, you may be an adult, but there's something that you love to do that is your own personal lens, the way that you see the world. In my case, I, let's put it this way. I spent so many years on long Shabbat afternoons, Sabbath afternoons, when I wouldn't watch TV because of uh, traditional observance, reading comic books and involving myself or really embedding myself into fantasy worlds. And that was very exciting for a long period of time. But then something happened called Daf Yomi, which is every day we learn a page of, of Talmud over the course of a cycle of about seven and a half years. Right. So you study a page of the Talmud each day. You can complete the entire Talmud in about seven years. Thank you. Correct. And I, it's not important how I was turned on to it. But at the beginning of the most recent cycle, I was. And I don't have the time or ability yet to learn the entire page, but I do learn a portion of the page. I do partial dafiomi. One of the ways that I do it, by the way, shout out to Liel Leibowitz, another great comic book fan who has a wonderful podcast. Huge friend of the pod, by the way. We love Liel here. Take One. And uh, that, by the way, Take One is what led me to you. Oh, now we're talking. You were a guest on Take One. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. And here we are. Anyway, so the, the point is that everybody should take what they love and use it to be able to inspire other people's Judaism, or for that matter, inspire their own Judaism. If you're a doctor, for example, then interpret the and inspire, be inspired in the Jewish works 
through the lens of science and the way that you look at the world. I see it through fantasy worlds, but you see it through science and somebody else may see it through education or psychology or even a hockey player. And whenever I tour, I ask people questions. I, you know, kind of go out there and do the Oprah thing. You know, what do you do for a living? And they'll say, uh, I'm a psychologist. Oh, and then I'll relate whatever Jewish topic we're talking about through psychology to their lives and point out that I'm nothing unique. I'm nothing special. It seems like, oh, you know, he works in such a quote unquote sexy occupation. You know, he gets to do Batman. Yeah, I can hear that, but it's it's no less important than anything else that you're doing to yourself. In other words, the most important person in the whole wide world is you, and you hardly even know you, to paraphrase an old PBS show or wherever that came from. <laughs> and um, whether I am, so turning it back to my own personal lens, which is storytelling, whether I'm doing it in music or whether I'm doing it in uh, through visual storytelling, whether it's TV or movies or comic books or graphic novels or what have you, there's a through line. There's a story spine in everything that I do, which is that I want to create harmony in both senses of the word. In music, it's going to be harmony musically and harmony communally. In storytelling, it's going to be holistically told stories, stories that really hold together and, and, and make sense on a craft side. They entertain you, but at the same time, they are inspiring you. They are inspiring the community to be engaged in the most incredible expanded universe that ever existed, which is Judaism. And that gets us back to the Dafyomi Talmud cycle, which is I began to think, what else is there? Are there more worlds that I want to embed myself into? I'm already into Star Wars and Doctor Who and whatever else. And then it occurs to me, you know, there's this 2,000-year-old tradition of Jewish learning. And despite the fact that I went to day school and I went to summer camps and all of that, and it's not like I didn't appreciate it, I did, but I never really made that leap. It's like um, my daughter, when she was learning guitar, it would be work in the beginning to practice guitar. And then one day she disappeared for two hours. I'm wondering, where did Ashira go? And I went upstairs and I heard behind the closed door the strumming of a guitar. And I realized she had made that leap. Suddenly guitar was not work for her anymore. It was now a part of her life. And I thought, wow, if I could just make Jewish learning a part of my life in that way, I would be able to be the fortunate benefactor of the greatest 2,000 plus 4,000 year old multiverse story universe that ever existed. And best of all, it's blessed by God. How do I do this? Well, one way is to listen to podcasts like yours. Another way is to take my personal love, my love of storytelling, and to have it cross over with my Judaism and create Jewish graphic novels and materials that use this popular modern superhero medium in order to promote Judaism. And if I do it right, I'm going to do it in a way like your podcast that is egalitarian. It reaches out to all people. I don't try to bring people to me. I try to go to where they are. And it operates on two levels. It operates on the level of simple translation and midrash and allegory, agada. And I also try to make them as uh, as authentic as possible. So I study 
archaeology and I study architecture. As you can see, I'm an objective-oriented person. I, I don't learn lishma. I don't learn for the sake of learning. I learn because I have a deadline that I have to reach. And this was my way of driving myself towards a deeper Judaism, a deeper truth. And that's what I would say is my blessing to all of your viewers. Find your own portal towards delving deeper into your Jewish roots. And believe me, it's going to be the most rich, fulfilling experience that you could possibly have. And now, how does Rabbi Lamb come into all of this? Spoiler alert here. Anytime I'm going to a community on one of my Jewish cartoon book tour travels, and well, anytime that I go, it's going to be over a Shabbat, I mean, there's stuff in the week table. Let's just talk about the Shabbat Scholar Residence. So at a Shabbat Scholar Residence, when I'm a featured speaker or presenter for my Jewish cartoon talks, there's always going to be a Shabbat Parshat Shavua, the Sabbath portion of the week. And I figure I should probably, like on this podcast, tie it in in some way, which I did very feebly, but nonetheless, in the beginning of this podcast with the story of Joseph. That's awesome. <laughs> and sometimes I get stuck. I'll give you a quick story over here. So I was in uh, a, a Kemp Mill in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, and I had a real problem because Rabbi Weinberg, the uh, rabbi of that synagogue, he puts out a weekly Parshat Shavua Torah portion email, and he gives two, three, four paragraphs, and I love them. I got on the mailing list somehow, and I absolutely love them. And whenever I go to a neighborhood, a community, a synagogue, and I give a talk, and I have to tie in my Jewish cartoon talks with the portion of the week, and I'm stuck, I turn to the Rabbi Weinberg email. So I'm now at Kemp Mill Synagogue, and I'm stuck. And I realize <laughs> I can't turn to the Rabbi Weinberg email because... He probably already shared it with the entire—he did already share it with the entire community. What am I going to do? <laughs> so, in fact, I told this story when I was a speaker over there, and he, he, cut, he cut me off and he said, don't worry, you're the only one who reads it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, rabbi humor is the best. So, anyway, my go-to is a book by your grandfather. I don't know if it was by or it's just a compilation of all of his speeches, but it is the most marvelous and valuable collection. And I'm almost sorry that I'm talking about this now because I'm giving it away. And now everybody's going to go out and read it. I'm going to show up and they're going to say, what? We bring you to the community? So you talk about a book we already read? <laughs> anyway, so there's one particular one, Bimidbar. It's the opening chapter of Numbers. And it's a census. And I always joke about this. Like, if you want to hire me, do me a favor. And, and you've said this also, the much maligned Sefer Vayikra, which is uh, Leviticus, right? And I have a different feeling about it. I think there is a ton of storytelling you can do around it from the Talmud on up, a subject for another time. But anyway, I always tell people, do me a favor. You can hire me until Yitro, Jethro, and then pick it up again <laughs> about halfway through numbers, because if you hire me and I have to relate comic books and superheroes to the building of the tabernacle, it's going to be a little rough going for me. But, uh, <laughs> but although, yeah, it, it, that's a whole nother topic about Bitsalel and, and who is the, the master artist in my own personal idol um, in, a, in a human sense. Anyway, so I'm somewhere, I don't remember which community, forgive me, for the beginning of numbers. And I need to tie this in. So a quick story. I was at the wonderful Stephen Wise Temple in Bel, Bel Air, California, and I was giving my Jewish cartoon workshop. In I don't just give presentations about 
comics and Judaism. I also want to get you involved. So what I do at these Jewish cartoon workshops is we pick a theme, whether it's the portion of the week or a holiday or a tradition. I give the rudiments of professional cartooning. I hand out the same professional tools that I use to make cartoons. And within one session, everybody has created a Jewish cartoon about this theme. Either it's literally an adaptation of the text or it's filtered through your own lens. So that way we can read your personal midrash, your personal interpretation about the Jewish text in comics form. And comics is wonderful. And you, 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 everybody says, well, what if I can't draw? Look, Three questions. Can you do a stick figure? Rebari, can you do a stick figure? Oh, yeah. Okay. Can you write words <laughs> on a page? Okay. Can you tell a story? Uh, try. try. Okay. Affirmative. Uh, affirmative. And you're Jewish. <laughs> you're a Jewish cartoonist. You've just been minted. You're done. You're ready to go. So when I travel, I always instill in people the idea that they already have in them, like Siegel and Schuster that we spoke about earlier. It's in, like you said, the neshama. It's in our Jewish souls to be storytellers. We really haven't talked much about that, but it was implicit when I talked about the rabbis of the Talmud going off on tangents, much like I do, where they'll be talking about uh, some legal and then suddenly they're talking about, you know, uh, their marital problems. And 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 we go quickly from uh, uh, from the Prince of Egypt to Bridgerton. And it, that that's what the Talmud is at its core for me. And when I go to these uh, different places and I do uh, family and student and adult and teen Jewish cartoon workshops, people do take me at my word and they draw with stick figures and we get the cartoons done and we collect them into a comic book that we then hand out for everybody to learn from. But occasionally there are budding artists who cannot help themselves, who have the need to draw fancy drawings. And I recognize them immediately as kindred souls. And there was one a student in particular at uh, the Stephen Wise Temple amongst the, I don't know how many we had, 50, 60, 70, maybe even 100 people in the room, who was clearly one of these artists, what I like to call a, uh, well, I'll tell you that in a second. She was she was an artist. So I approached her. I said, listen, we're going to need a cover for this comic book, and I'd like you to draw it. She said, well, she was a little, you know, understated, a little meek. And she said, well, I, I don't know if I can. I'd have to stay behind. I'd have to ask for, for permission. I said, why don't you go ask your teacher or principal for permission? I'd really like you to do this. Comes back a minute later, and she, and she says, okay, I'll do it. And then literally all of the students left, and the next class came in, but she's still sitting on the side, hunkered down, drawing her comic book cover. And finally... It had to have been a couple hours later. She hands it to me. It's stunning. It's terrific. I'm so proud of it. I said, I would be honored if I could take a picture with you. We have a picture of us standing together. I'm holding up my Passover Haggadah graphic novel, and she's holding up her Passover cartoon, Passover Haggadah cartoon, Stephen Wise cover. And, you know, that's the end of it. And then I'm, I'm cleaning up. And somebody who I think was the principal, but certainly one of the guidance counselors or one of the teachers came up to me afterwards and said, do you know who that was? And I said, yeah, that was the young lady that I assigned to do the comic book cover. What of it? You know, I'm being a little flippant. She said, no, you don't understand. This young lady was on the verge of being kicked out of school. She had been nothing but trouble to us for the last week or so misbehaving in class, called into the principal's office, her parents coming in to do meetings with us. We were beside ourselves. We didn't know what to do with her. And you give her this comic book assignment, and for the first time, she's sitting down, and she is focused on, never mind Jewish learning, 
she's she's just focused on a school project altogether and she's smiling and i said to the teacher well forgive me it's fairly obvious to me she's a visual learner and she's not connecting with the way the vast majority of us i don't know if this is the vast majority of us the way the vast majority of us learn or it's that our our educational institutions have become established at teaching us in a very text-oriented way. Learn this material and then spit it back in the multiple choice question test. But she doesn't think that way. She thinks in images and stories, and that's the way she needs to connect. And all of us have that in our Jewish neshama. All of us have that in our soul, but some people even more than others. And one of the things that I'm working on right now is is an idea for a new organization, which I would like to call the Yeshiva of Visual Learners. So for everybody who's listening out there, if what I'm describing is you, if you need to doodle in the margins of your Talmud in order to stay focused, because that's the way you think, I want to know who you are. And together, I want to be able to do something that your grandfather, Rabbi Lamb, pointed out in this Dvar Torah in the beginning of Numbers. And I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm going to do the best I can, because forgive me, I forgot to look it up to bone up on the specific details, but it goes something like this. When the tribes were formed to take a census in the desert, and Moses is going to survey all of them, each tribe, which was based on the 12 tribes, the sons of, of Jacob, including Joseph. Uh, Joseph notoriously did not have a tribe for himself for reasons that are not worth getting into. But the point is, there's a tie into this week's Parsha. I just wanted to make that, uh, that, that relevance. <laughs> yes. So all of the different encampments of the different tribes were carrying two flags. One flag was for the nation, and then one was for their tribe. And your grandfather asked a fascinating question, which was, why in the world are they carrying two flags? Why is that necessary? And I don't remember if he said this or not, but I'll ask this question. Isn't it kind of obvious which nation you belong to? Why do you need to carry, I mean, 12 exactly, you know, similar, exactly the same flags? Just carry your own, you know, individual flag. You don't need. So your grandfather said, wrote, and again, forgive me if I'm paraphrasing poorly, you guys can go look it up and read it. You folks can go look it up and read it. But he said, the reason why is because there are two sides to us. One side is our individualism, and the other side is our communalism. In order to be part of a community, you also have to embrace your individualism, what makes you, you. Because if you just go for the communal aspect of society, well, that's fascism. And if you only go for the individual side of society, uh, you know, what would that be? I mean, obviously it's selfish, but uh, it's like, it's, um, it's, it's anarchy. That's what it is, right? You need both in order to have not only a healthy society, but a healthy person. And when I read that, I said, oh my gosh, this is central to what I think is my life's mission, my God-given mission, which is to merge these two together, to inspire people through the work that I do in taking my individual ability, my superpower, which is using storytelling to promote the communal good, which is Judaism as a community and a religion. And I think that through these efforts, through the books that we're putting out, 
through the individual interactions that I have, through the inspiring and being inspired by communities of people, we can achieve my central goal, which is to make Judaism your superpower. Amen. Oh, my God. That was awesome. And by the way, that sermon, Banners in the Desert, I think it's 1961, is an absolute, I mean, barn burner. It is really, really, really good. Highly encourage you to read it. Gorf, this was unbelievable. Thank you so much for being here. This is like one of the, I was so fast, I could barely remember what I was asking. This was so good. Yeah, and I could barely remember either because of all of my tangents. But before we go, <laughs> I, haven't had, I haven't had a drink in a while. So can you just, you know, rattle off some classical uh, hoo-ha <laughs> that I, I'm not familiar with? Just throw throw. Cassius Dio. Oh my Cicero. gosh, L'Chaim, L'Chaim, Cassius, L'Chaim. Unbelievable. This is so good. Thank you so, so much for doing this. This was unbelievable. I can't wait to have you back again. It's my pleasure. Wishing everybody a wonderful, wonderful rest of the Jewish year. And it's not too early. Happy and healthy Passover. Dear to my heart. And for all of, and we have lots and lots of non-Jewish listeners out there. And uh, and make this a part of your journey. Now, I mean, I know for for you, we're, we're keeping a different calendar, but for you, your year is winding down. I mean, make this a part of what makes your coming year special. This is something. This is something super, super powerful. This was. This is really wonderful, Gorf. Thank you for doing this. Bismcha. I welcome all good faith effort listeners to follow me, Gorf, at Jewish Cartoon, Instagram, and Facebook at Jewish Cartoon. And for more information about what I do, including scholar residence, Jewish Cartoon workshops, books, and future projects www.jewishcartoon.com. That's jewishcartoon.com. One of the great differences between Athens and Jerusalem is that while Athens was the early master of philosophical inquiry, Jerusalem became the early master of storytelling. The Bible is the source for the greatest stories ever told, what Rabbi Sachs called philosophy in the narrative mode. And at least in terms of scale, perhaps the greatest storytelling civilization after ancient Israel is America, at least since the invention of modern media. And of course, you know, it's no accident that one of the most profound influences on American society is actually the texts, the values, and the ideas of ancient Israel. So how should we understand this legacy of storytelling from ancient times until today? Well, <laughs> Gorf provided us with so many different avenues for exploration, but the one I'd like to just quickly highlight in these waning moments of the pod is the idea of superpowers. You know, one of the most dastardly tricks the pagans ever pulled was convincing humanity that you couldn't have superpowers without being divine yourself. But the great biblical revolution in moral affairs, by contrast, began with the notion that every single one of us is created in the divine image. And so it's precisely in being just human in being merely mortal, that we have within us the ultimate superpower of bearing God's own image. Anyway, thanks for joining us today. This has been a total blast. And while you're here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. 
Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.